0: We've had three breathless days of heavy, heavy-duty national politics. That is in the lead-up, the day before the consecration at Ayodhya, the day of the consecration, and the day after. Also now, Republic Day is coming up. French President Emmanuel Macron's coming up. So, focus is going on, going, going on to be on that issue as well. In this situation, in the middle of this week, I'm going to talk about Ukraine. That's the last thing you expected to hear from me on today, in in this episode of Cut the Clutter. But you know what? Once in a while, I surprise you. I surprise you. Sometimes, sometimes I surprise you with, with something completely offbeat or completely out of the news. But this is not out of the news. I will also explain to you why is it so? Why is it so that we should not, we should not take our eye off What's happening in Ukraine? Because, you know, this is now looking like a never-ending war. It's a kind of war that Iran and Iraq had that went on for almost eight years. In this case now, this is going to be finish its second year for the past many months. For the past many months. While one military superpower, I'm careful, I say military superpower. Russia is not a superpower, otherwise it's a sub-2 trillion dollar economy, right? But it's a military superpower. So one military superpower and another country, one one third its size or, or almost one fourth its size, which did not even have a navy or air force 10 years back. In fact, even now does not have a navy or air force or air force may be in name, but not, not, not beyond that, a navy not even in name, that those two countries are stalemated. So a military superpower has been stalemated by a much smaller military power. And they've been fighting along the same broad front for the past many months, trading a lot of, lot of casualties and a lot of damage. In fact, they've been firing a lot of artillery at each other, a lot of rockets and missiles. The Russians are firing missiles, long-range missiles. The Ukrainians are firing some missiles, rockets and also using a lot of long-range drones. So, that kind of battle or series of battles is going on along almost an 800 kilometer front. It is a, if you look at it that way militarily, it might look like a very boring war. Very boring war in which unfortunately people die, uh, families suffer, economies get devastated. But no space is traded and when space is not traded movement doesn't take place sounds like it's a boring war so why should i be bothered about it let me let me then explain to you why this war is important for us and why we should not take our eye off it if you look at everything that's happening in the world right now the the state of the world has turned inside out upside down you can choose your description in the past two years the The reason this started, the root of all this lies in the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Because if Russia had not invaded Ukraine, Russia's need for Chinese help or Chinese support would not have become as strong as it is. So that, that closeness, that closeness by compulsion that Russia sought with China has now created an imbalance in the global balance of power that affects the world that affects India as well, because India's longest, longest lasting, most durable friend on whom India still has a lot of dependence. Remember, almost 95 percent, if not more tanks of Indian army are of the Russian slash Soviet origin, all the armored personnel carriers, as they used to be called in the past, now they are infantry fighting vehicles of the Indian Army. Almost all are of Soviet-Russian origin. Brahmo's missile is a 50-50. That's our only cruise missile. Brahmo's missile is a 50-50 Indian-Russian joint venture. The flagship of our Navy has been, for a long time, for for a long time, a Russian, a former Russia, a Russian Navy ship, in fact, a foreign former Soviet Navy ship. Most of the combat assets, combat flying assets of Indian Navy are of Soviet slash Russian origin. Sagrikap missile program or nuclear submarine program depends greatly on Russian, Russian collaboration, cooperation, as does, as do some some aspects of our missile and and rocket programs as well missile missile and space programs as well so this is a very sensitive relationship that india has with russia and india has no intention of discontinuing that in that situation russia became becoming that much more dependent on china when china is giving india a lot more trouble is is a very significant change for india by this change by the way has come only in a one sided manner, manner in the sense that the decision to start the war in Ukraine was only one country's, one government's, and in fact one leader's. That is Vladimir Putin. So this is significant for India in particular. Now, because Russia has needed more and more ammunition and more and more cheaper missiles and cheaper drones, they've been buying those, they've been sourcing those from Iran. So, Iran has become very useful for Russia. Iran has become useful for Russia. Iran already has a good relationship with China. So, a new axis has developed. That is the China-Iran-Russia axis. It is the development of this axis that has then emboldened Iran. It has emboldened Iran Earlier, Iran would make impact in its immediate neighborhood, maybe some in Iraq, maybe some in Syria and, and around Israel. But, but now you can see that Iran has got emboldened and Iran is projecting its power way beyond its immediate neighborhood. And that's the reason we say that Iran's control now, or it's not quite control, Iran's, Iran's shadow now spreads from the Mediterranean to the, to the Arabian Sea, across the Red Sea and, and the Persian Gulf or Arabian Gulf, if you, if, if, if you prefer to call it. So Iran has acquired this larger image or larger shadow or larger footprint over global affairs than it, it would have ever, ever imagined would not have happened, but for the war in Ukraine. Now, because of the war in Ukraine, we see many divisions also coming up. In Europe, and those divisions reflect in many ways, those divisions reflect, first of all, in terms of are you going to fight Russia, are you not going to fight Russia? So there are countries that have doubts and these are are NATO members, Hungary, for example. In other countries, issues are developing about immigrants or refugees. That number of refugees has been rising once again, once the Russians have become antagonists in this new global rebalancing of power Russians now have the ability to use their proxies and groups like Wagner to do quote-unquote interesting things in Africa this at a time when the American and Western power have both got really tired, caught up in Europe and caught up in the war in Ukraine. They've got so tired and they've got so overstressed that they they are not able to keep, keep an eye on Africa. And that's where Russian proxies, Wagner in particular, they are able to operate in Africa. The impact of that from Africa, from Libya, from Syria, is that all of these are driving more refugees out. And where do those refugees go? Refugees, no refugees go to fellow African countries. No refugees go to fellow Islamic countries. Even Palestinians don't go to fellow Islamic countries because nobody would take them. They all go to Western countries, mostly European countries, Canada for as long as Canada would take them, and to America if they can get in there. So this becomes one more instrument in the hand of, in the hand of Vladimir Putin to increase the pressure on the Western power. And the Western power at the same time is getting tired and exhausted. And this is when so many Western countries, this is is a year when at least 74 democracies, depending on, it can be 68, it it can be 80, depending on how you define a democracy, at least 74 democracies by my count are going to have their elections this year. Almost all members... In fact, all members of the Western Alliance happen to be democracies. So they are going to face public opinion and public opinion is assessing the idea of spending so much money on a war, on a war in Ukraine, which is not quite ending. They might have been given the hope that the war will be over one year, one and a half years, or maybe two years that Putin will tire or somebody will get Putin out. Similarly, it's possible that in Russia, Putin promised his people, his generals and his people, that this will be over in a week. And in fact, in the beginning, it had looked like it will be over in a week. Even I bought into that, but that didn't happen. It's now, we are now going to have the second anniversary of the war. It is in that situation, it is in that situation that Ukraine has brought the world. It's in that situation now that, The Great Britain, UK will have its election. Looks like the incumbent is facing a big challenge there. That's what the opinion polls say. And it's in this situation that America will have its election. So this is now coming towards the conclusion of the first Biden presidency. Will they be second or not? One of the factors deciding that will be the, will be how the, how the war in Ukraine goes. At the same time, one of the factors determining where the war in Ukraine will go because that depends on how much help can America and the West, its western allies can give Ukraine or can they at least give Ukraine what they have promised or what is due in terms of their earlier promises. That depends on how the American politics will go. So that is the complexity of the situation all of which arises from the war in Ukraine. That's the reason we can't take our eye off it. Now, we've just concluded the week in Davos, World Economic Forum. So this time, the idea was, if you look at the, looked at the agenda of the World Economic Forum this year, the agenda would make it sound like the least geopolitical World Economic Forum, least geopolitical Davoses of all times. But in reality, the geopolitical shadow was hanging heavy on the entire place particularly among the europeans because they are they are now worrying that what happens what happens if biden loses and trump comes in trump is already committed to not only stopping the war in ukraine which means stopping any more support to ukraine basically giving an ultimatum to Zelensky to settle for something with putin and vice versa he hopes that that will work. In fact, he has said that the war in Ukraine will stop on his first day as president. So they worry about that because without help from the Americans, it isn't very far that Zelensky or Ukraine can go in this war. If that happens, and if the Russians see themselves as the victors of that war, that will change the power equation completely for the Europeans. Then Europeans will they be at Russia's mercy or at America's mercy. If Trump is in power, Europeans will no longer be able to count on American support, even though that's a treaty commitment under NATO arrangement. Because even earlier, Trump Trump is the one who used to keep asking the Europeans to build their own militaries, to build their own defense, or at least start paying him, start paying the Americans for what the Americans spend on, spend on Europe's defense. So some of those questions will come up. That's why... At Davos this year, the star of the show, star quote-unquote star, because star usually is taken in a positive, positive sense, it wasn't quite positive. The star of the show was Zelensky. Now, two years back, 2022, when Davos took place in the summer, because the previous year, winter Davos had not taken place because of COVID. The following year also, January 2022, the COVID overhang was still there. So, again, in the usual time, Davos didn't happen in 2022, January. It was shifted to the summer. In that summer, Zelensky did not come physically. He spoke virtually. So, even when he spoke virtually, he was a star, star, star in a positive sense. Because he was seen as something who had defied the Russian power. Contrary to expectations that he will fold fold up in a week or that he will escape and seek refuge somewhere else. Because everybody's memories were fresh from what happened in Kabul and Ghani's flight. And everybody thought that something like Ghani will happen in this case, except in this case, Zelensky might go to a Western country, maybe maybe, maybe to Paris or maybe to, maybe to another, another country in Europe or America and run his government in exile from there while his people carried out maybe guerrilla warfare. But that did not happen. Not only did that not happen, he actually pushed back the Russians. He inflicted humongous casualties and damage and I must say enormous humiliation on the Russian military power. So, 2022 summer, he was a hero. He was a star. 2024 January, he was presented Davos physically. He was presented Davos physically. He was much sought after, of course. But in this case, he is the one. There was a change in Zelensky's mood. He is the one. He is the one who was now seeking out others. He was seeking out others. And he was also somebody who was seen to be under enormous security threat. Now, Davos is a place where heads of state come from all over with their security, etc. It's also it's also a place where on one street, the promenade, you can run into, you can run into Macron, you can run into Emmanuel Macron, Olaf Scholz of Germany, you can you you can run into John Kerry, you can run into Javier Mele of Argentina three times, four times in a day. It's that kind of place. In that kind of a place. I've never seen this street being blocked for any visiting head of state and blocked not for a minute or two, but blocked for an hour and a half. That happened. Why did that happen? That happened because Zelensky was visiting a little Ukraine pavilion there on on the street. He was visiting it and traffic was blocked on both sides. And there were literally, literally hundreds of people lined up on both sides and scores of motor vehicles scores of motor vehicles with many important powerful people ceos of top companies it was like the gdp of a lot of country was standing there waiting waiting for the Bando bust to be lifted or what we call in delhi as route lagya route to be lifted right when the prime minister is going somewhere or president's going somewhere in Delhi, they say, New Delhi, they say, root lag gaya hai, which means police have come and blocked off traffic so no one else can go until the, until the convoy of the BVIP passes. In this case, that happened because of Zelensky. Why? Because of the fear that there is a big threat to his life. So from being this big, great star who was lionized when he was present only virtually, when he was here physically, he was seen as, he was seen as somebody in need. He was also seen as somebody under great threat. Now, the threat to him, the threat to him is not just physical to himself. The threat to him also is in terms of what's happening to his country. Because in this case, instead of being sought after, it is Zelensky who was going out seeking people, not just world leaders, but also global CEOs, also investors, asking them to invest. For example, in one session, asking them to invest in Ukraine economy. And he said, why should you invest in Ukraine's economy? Let me put it differently. Investing in Ukraine's economy means you are investing in your own security. So his pitch was that if Ukraine loses this war, then all of the Western world loses this war and you will then have to deal with Russia, Putin's power, rampant Putin on your own. You will be on your own. And he said, and this is something that he also said in a small get together, in a small exchange with A group of international editors it was on the record in that in that exchange he said that look if ukraine loses what happens to europe the largest and the strongest army in europe would have been defeated and if you did a little check and as i did on google immediately ukraine's army today is the largest and the strongest army in europe so he said that will be do you want to live with a situation where Putin has defeated the largest and the strongest army in Europe? Then Putin will be, ultimately, Ukraine will fold over without help. And Putin will take over Ukraine and he'll be sitting on the borders of Poland and he'll be sitting over the borders of NATO in the sense that over much longer span, over a much longer span of the borders of NATO. So if you are then coming, if you, if you will then come to defend NATO from Putin, why not do it now? Some more interesting ideas came from him or some more interesting revelations came from him. He said, for example, first of all, he showed Insecurity about the possibility of Trump getting reelected. When he was asked what happens if Trump wins, he first answered with a smirk. Right, smirk and then some kind of mock horror. But he really did not have an answer. So the answer was like, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. That said, when he was asked that why is he not talking to the Chinese? Because the Chinese premier was present there. He said if Xi Jinping wants to talk, I will talk to him. Xi Jinping is the president, he decides in China, I'm the president in my country, I decide in my country. I will not talk to the why should I talk to the premier when my prime minister is here? he will talk to the Chinese Prime Minister because the Chinese Prime Minister doesn't decide at that level. But in the tone with which he spoke, you could see a great deal of impatience and concern and anger with China as well. And also, also a kind of unspoken statement that he sees China as Russian ally right now. Then the interesting point about his need for ammunition. He said, for example, one particular country has offered him a gift of 2,155 mm shells. And he said, you know what, what does 2,000 shells of 155 mm count for? It's about 30% of one day's firing by Ukrainian armed forces. That means Ukrainian armed forces are firing about 7,500, 155 mm shells in a day. These are long-range artillery shells. In fact, from all estimates that I read, the Russian army is firing about 20,155 mm shells in a day. So this is really a long-range artillery war and it's brutal. In modern warfare, more than 90% casualties are caused by artillery. So this is an artillery war and... Artillery is something which the Russians have mastered. And Russians use massed artillery. They have an industrial base. Again, Zelensky said, look they've revved up their own industrial base. Plus they are getting, in spite of the fact that they have such a large industrial base of their own to make these shells, they are getting these from North Koreans. And he said they are getting these from the Iranians. He didn't quite say the Chinese, but the fact is that Russians are now getting quite a bit of ordnance from North Korea and Iran as well. What is the reality of the battlefield? The reality of the battlefield is, and I will share with you an article, a very, very interesting article, very good article from from War on the Rocks. It's an article based, on based on the views of three experts so there there is dara messicott is senior fellow of russia russian eurasian security at carnegie then Dmitry gorenberg who's senior research scientist at the center for naval analysis who has talked about how the winter offensive failed from the ukrainian side first and now the russian offensive the the ukrainian counter-offensive failed and now the russian offensive has failed all three experts are saying that i will tell you what is the consequence of that with which we'll conclude and as we come towards the conclusion of this episode of cut the clutter i will also introduce to you swasti rao who's a who's a first class top class strategic affairs scholar and who's also a member a stellar member of our group of columnists on international affairs in fact Truth to tell, she knows a hell of a lot more about this subject that, that I'm holding forth on today. So, so please stay with me. And that said, the third expert in this list from whom I'm quoting from this War on the Rocks article is Max Bergman, who's director of Europe, director for Europe, Russia and Eurasia at CSIS. That is the Center for Strategic and International Studies. So what is the, what is the sum, sum total of the analysis of these three? Because this is also the sense that comes out from what Zelensky is saying at Davos. The sense is that now Ukraine is on the defensive. So Ukraine started out being on the defensive. In fact, being almost, having almost its backs to the wall. Then there was a turnaround because Russians were trapped in a in a trap that they laid for themselves because of their arrogance and because of the rush in which they went in and then they suffered grievously that that emboldened the Ukrainians also as the new weapon systems came in from the West Ukrainians thought they could now launch a counterattack. That counterattack threw the Russians on the defensive for some time. The big gain that the Ukrainians made in that process of Kherson, that ba- battle we featured in a full episode of Cut the Clutter. Since then, the battle is frozen. The battle is frozen. Sometimes Russians take a village, sometimes they lose that village, but beyond that, nothing's happening. Then the Russians launched a fresh attack and that stalled as well so what is this what is it that these three experts are telling us and what is this the larger analysis also from what Zelensky has been saying telling us that's telling us one that at this point ukraine is on the defensive but when ukraine when the russians attack they also are making no headway So what is, what is the conclusion? The conclusion is that both sides are much better at defense than attacking, or maybe both sides are much better equipped at defending than attacking russians are attacking the front line that they have achieved after the initial gains. they lost some of it but not too much ukrainians on the other hand are able to defend what they have so russians are not able to make any progress because both are better at defense than attack the war is fully stalemated right now second what is the russian strategy russian strategy is to continue on like this through the winter let the summer come Let the second winter come because in any case, they know that they need to buy the time until the results of American elections come out because they are hoping that Trump will win. If that happens, if they can stretch it that long and American help does not come. In the process, Ukraine will tire out. But more importantly, Ukrainian air defenses will will tire out. One of the things that Zelensky talked about all the time was the depleting stock of his Patriot missiles because he said Russians are using very sophisticated missiles. And the only system that he has that can stop these is Patriot missiles. And he's simply not getting enough of them. And this new aid package doesn't come. And the new aid package we know is stuck in the American system. It's a $200 billion Eight package, part of it has to go to Taiwan and most of it has to come to Ukraine, both countries which are very important to America strategically, at least in the Biden scheme of things. But these are stuck because Republican Party wants a deal on immigrants. They want the American president to reduce his parole power. So they think that he's allowing too many people who are coming in across the wall from the south. You know, people who come in through the donkey process, mostly whether Indians or Nicaraguans or from any other part of part of South America and other parts of the world, including Syrians, Libyans, people from all over the world are trying to go go into America, that too many of them are being allowed to come in. They are a drain on America's resources. And also, at the same time, that ultimately they will become Democratic Party's voters. It's all about politics in the end. So they they say that unless they get a deal on immigration, they are not going to sign off on a deal for money or help for Ukraine and Taiwan. That is stuck. As we talk, those negotiations are going on. That's a big story in Washington. What happens, we will know, I think, in the next week or so. But it's in this process of uncertainty and battlefield stalemate that Ukraine and Russia sit right now. And while they sit like this, in this situation, you can see other countries that are taking advantage of it. Iran is one and Iran is the most visible. But the country that's really benefited most of all from this is China. Because China has now become undoubtedly, unarguably the second biggest power in the world. And given how dysfunctional the American system is, at this point, they might only be the deputy superpower, but at least they are a functional deputy superpower. Whereas America, it might call itself the only superpower, but it's only a half functioning superpower. But now that we finished this unlikely episode of Katha Clutter on Ukraine taking stock of the situation, let me defer to a real expert. And what a pleasure it is for me to introduce to all of you, Swasti Rao, Dr. Swasti Rao, our columnist. On international affairs, she's a specialist on many areas, but let me tell you something that not enough people realize that she is a rare specialist on Japan as well. She learned the language. She researched in Japan, and that is a part of the world on which India needs a lot more scholarship than it has had Japan, mm-hmm. Taiwan, China. So Swasti, tell us a little bit about yourself. Because I saw you in the newsroom <laughs> today, I thought, fayda uthau, let me oh. <laughs> take advantage of your presence and drag you in. So, tell us about yourself.
1: Okay. So, first of all, thank you, Shekharji. And it's, it's really, it's nice. I mean, I've been writing, of course, um, on, on European affairs and European security and a lot of other international, uh, you know, uh, issues for the print. And uh, I, I work at the Manohar Parikar Institute. Um, Manohar
0: Parikkar Institute of Defense Studies and Analysis.
1: Yes, it was earlier called ITSA, but then we added, uh, you know, Manohar Parikarji's name, uh, you know, to it. So uh, what more can I say uh, about myself? Yes, I'm a completely international relations person. And we were just discussing how I got into IR. And then uh, while I was still doing my MA from JNU, I got interested in in Japan. I traveled to that country. Then eventually I landed up writing my PhD there. Uh, Then finally I came back to India. I was teaching for about three years Um, At AMU, I was teaching security and strategic studies. I was teaching courses on European security, on uh, different types of conflicts, on the theory of war, on the rise of China, etc. And it's very interesting. And lots of uh, my my students would be interested, ex-students would be interested because then I used to, uh, you know, see the cut, the clutter. And I used to recommend (laughs) all the relevant um, episodes to my students, and I, I would if I go back to my Google classrooms because two years were COVID years. I would still find a lot of uh, cut the clutter episodes indexed there.
0: So that just shows so, you that cut the clutter has been around for a long time.
1: <laughs> then eventually I joined uh, IDSA, and uh, at IDSA I work uh, on Europe. And uh, I joined, and the war in Ukraine started, and then I've been living and breathing the war for the last two years. And um, I think uh, I've already been uh, you know writing a lot on the war lately. Uh, Not just on the war, but also issues of European security. So I think uh, uh, a lot of you. So you
0: made a move in a way from Japan to Europe to, to Europe
1: so uh, like i said that when i was teaching at amu then i was teaching courses on european security and three years i taught courses on european security uh, on different issues uh, you know from things like uh, their migrant problem to their uh, you know the, the the nato versus russia problem the problem of ukraine the problem of for example european integration and lot of a whole host of things I used to cover in that uh, paper that I had actually made and I got it passed from the Board of Studies. So I used to teach that to the third year students. So that's how my interest in European studies started to sort of flourish. And,
0: and how much uh, how much of an eye do you still keep on Japan?
1: Well, I do because a lot of people don't know, Shekharji, that actually Japan and European Union is are very close allies and one of the things, if you notice carefully, I've been mentioning that in my pieces as well, that, um, you know, there is a merging going on or there's, I mean, at least um, one can see that that dynamic has now come where the Indo-Pacific theatre is merging with the European security theatre, which were at least hitherto, they were completely unconnected. But the war in Ukraine, the China factor, the coming together of Russia, China, All of that has created this uh, synergy between the two security theatres and where Japan is playing a very important role. In fact, it's uh, the Japanese Prime Minister Kishida who first talked about indivisible security from Europe to Indo-Pacific.
0: So tell us about your research in Japan, your PhD.
1: So I worked on uh, basically I I, uh, I mean technically I worked on advanced uh, comparative international politics. I compared the democratic experiences of uh, two leading democracies in Asia, which was India and Japan, and I also looked at the uh, you know at the role of the advocacy sector as to how powerful is that advocacy sector in the two countries. And my professor was doing this, uh, you know, this mega project on um, collecting primary data. So, of course, I became instrumental and then I collected a lot of data. I also learned doing a lot of SPSS, something that uh, we were not really taught. What into. does it stand you know, for? It's a statistical package for social science. So, there was a lot of cleaning, a lot of regression analysis, a lot of, you know, other mathematical tools that I had to learn uh, from scratch. And eventually, yes, uh, so that's what I worked on. But uh, you know later, uh, I also you know started covering a lot of security you know related things. And like I, I think a lot of people would agree that Japan is a natural partner with whom we still have not uh, explored our full potential.
0: So, yeah, but if you look look around our metros that are coming up, <laughs> Delhi, Mumbai, yeah. none of that would happen without Japanese being there
1: so that's the larger that's the imagination that japan captures in an ordinary India's, indian's mind which is japanese quality japanese oda uh, the contribution to metro and to all these developmental projects uh, but then i think the two countries are pitched to play a far more important role and of course quad of course a lot of people would know but then it's not just that it's a lot of other things that i think japan and india can really uh, take forward and i think there is also, uh, not enough understanding in India as to how the war in Ukraine has changed Japan. If you look at their new security strategy, their new yes. uh, so, you know, uh, defense policy, it's completely rebound.
0: So how has the war in Ukraine, since I talked about the war in Ukraine today, the stage at which the war stands today, which is still limited, yeah. uh, and what it means, uh, How does the how has the war in Ukraine affected Japanese strategic thinking?
1: Well, uh, so I think it is important to um, to mention at the outset that Japan and Russia have also been pretty close. In fact, if you look at Shinzo Abe's times, before Shinzo Abe was assassinated, right, he got assassinated. So before he was assassinated, he was the prime minister of Japan. And one of the market, um, I would say... Uh, improvements and of the Abe era was to you know try and co-opt Russia because they, Russia was important for Japan's energy security. They had uh, investments in Sakhalin one and two, and they also have a, the Kuril Island issue between them. But they because, had said uh,
0: Russians claims. have claims. Yeah.
1: Russians have claims there. Russians have, you know, so they have a island dispute. Japan, being an island country, has island disputes with China, Russia and uh, South Korea. But talking about Russia and the Kura Isles there. So they had set that aside and they had tried to co-opt, uh, you know, Russians. And again, for Indians, it would make sense because, again, what the Japanese were doing under uh, Shinzo Abe was they were trying to balance between their dependence on China with Russia. It's pretty much what we have been uh, you know doing but after the war happened um, of course there has been a very clear shift from that co uh, you know um, i would say co option uh, of uh, russia and what they have been doing is that they of course they joined the g7 sanction regime Uh, The uh, Japanese investments in Sakhalin 1 and 2 are still exempt from those sanctions. But in terms of their own security architecture, there has been a significant, I would say, change. In fact, it's been a sea change because Japan was a country that has an Article 9 Article 9 is a peace constitution, but despite that, uh, they have made formidable changes to their national security strategy and national defense strategy, and, and they've gained long-range long, uh, long range missiles, etc.
0: In fact, we featured Japan's new national security strategy in one episode of Contact yeah. Clutter. Yeah. And you know what? In just five minutes, Swasti has given us the promise of what more... Can she teach us as we talk with her a bit more? <laughs> so, going ahead, Swasti, expect us to drag you to our newsroom more often. <laughs> and maybe one of these days, we'll have a full episode of Katta Clutter based on a conversation with Swasti, where I promise you, I will let Swasti talk and I will talk as little as possible. So, thank you very much, Swasti. <laughs>
1: thank you thank you but we Good look one.
0: forward to seeing you in our in our newsroom and in our studio